Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to discuss the topic of windrow grazing or sometimes referred to as swath grazing. And to have a conversation about this today, I'm joined by Tim Kalkowski, who's part of a family operation located in Boyd County. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, Aaron, thanks for, for having me. The windrow grazing is, has uh, been a, an important part of our ranching operation up in northern, northern Nebraska, so I'd be glad to visit with you about that. So, Tim, tell us a little more about the history of the operation. I think you have a really interesting story to tell there, how the operation got started and then how it's grown to where it is today. Yes. Uh, my mom and dad were teachers in northern Nebraska, out of Bassett, Nebraska, and they actually built this ranch starting in the in the 1950s. And uh, they did it off of teacher's pay. And my dad was involved in kind of like the NRDs. And he had this vision of conservation and stewardship. And so they developed a grazing system and they used yearling cattle. So he was kind of the, the beginning of where you grazed yearling cattle on grass and then took them to market, you know, July, August. He built the ranch off that. We are absentee landowners, but we are there about every weekend and we have uh, some help up there that helps us quite a bit. But I always joke, joke that my brother and I could put a 40 hour weekend together in on a Saturday and and Sunday and be back to work on our normal jobs, which is banking on a Monday morning. But we've developed it as a family ranch where we run cow-calf pairs at a yearling operation. We've added to the ranch. Uh, one of the things we have added is cover crops and kind of the reason we're here today with our windrow grazing. But we, we really try to pay attention to what's happening, you know, with wildlife and with soil health and obviously water. And we think rotational grazing has probably been instrumental in, in what we've done to meet those conservation and stewardship needs. We've done a lot of creating of water through pipelines and dams and a lot of uh, electric fence, uh, high tensile fence, separating pastures so we can do kind of a modified grazing system. We started that back in the 80s, and we know with our data that we've increased our numbers by 33% just by rotational grazing. And then by adding the cover crops, we try not to hay other than when they're calving, maybe, you know, a little bit in March and April. So then the cover crops have become pretty important to us, and then that's where we've been, been doing the window grazing. So that'll give you a little history of our place up in north central Nebraska. Talk a little more just about the system that you do have in place. So you obviously have a range and pasture base, but also have some crops as part of that. I just give a little more picture of what the operation looks like today, the mix of cow-calf and yearling. How does that system look? Yeah, great question. The reason we run about 50% cow-calf pairs and 50% yearling steers usually the reason the yearling steers are so important to us is because that is our drought plan. So if we get in a dry situation like we have been, you know, we've been in D4 drought in uh, 20 and 21, and we were D3 in the start of 22. We, we actually pulled 
most of those yearling steers off early. Like uh, one year, we didn't even graze, graze yearlings. We just took care of the cows because that's all we had grass for. So the yearlings are very important from drought management. But they're also important because I can graze my grass differently. And we've ex done an experiment with the university where we've gone in and grazed early, really heavy, because we have a lot of cool season grasses and uh, with large number of yearling cattle. And then we'll graze it really heavy and then not come back in order to promote uh, more warm season grasses. And that's been pretty effective for us. So we try to graze six plus months. Then we'll take our cows and, and we take them to local corn stocks, which, which work very well for us. But we maybe will keep our younger cattle at home, like our first and second calvers. And that's where we've been grazing these cover crops, both standing and windrow. We also purchased a few years ago some irrigated ground that was fairly close, three miles down the road. And that's become important to us because, again, that's kind of our drought plan because we can cut, cut silage off of it if we need. And also we can put cover crops under irrigation in the fall and graze it kind of when we're calving. Obviously, you know, winter conditions and stuff, we're kind of dependent on that in our northern climate. And then we bring our cows to calve. We, we calve still around March 15th. We're trying to push that back later to kind of calve on our grass. But with our cool season grasses, we need to be out grazing, oh, by April 20th. And so we're trying to incorporate how that works with our with pushing our calving back. But we do like to put our bulls in and our breeding season be kind of match it where we have our best forage. And, and in our scenario, that's earlier than later. So we're we're still trying to figure that out. But if we can stockpile winter feed in the form of cover crops and only feed hay maybe, you know, March 15th to April 15th, you know, we try to limit it. That's what we'd like to do. But our our terrain up in northern Nebraska is pretty rough. We've got a lot of trees and a lot of draws. So, you know, checking cattle during calving, you got to kind of be careful where you put them because of our how our range and our our draws and that sort of stuff works. So I, did that answer your question, Aaron? Yeah, that's great. So the calves that are born on your operation, do most of those get carried over then and run as yearlings? And then you buy in some calves in the fall or what does that look like in terms of putting your yearling package together? We keep all of our calves and then we will carry them and we'll background them. And we only try to gain about a one and a half and then they go to grass. And then we're not afraid to ship yearling cattle at a thousand pounds. Uh, we, we will ship them uh, steers anyway, between 950 and a thousand would be our target. And they would probably go out, you know, starting in July through August. And we, we will sort and load lots. And obviously, you know, the heavier runs will go first and then we'll, uh, we'll time them accordingly. We try to scale everything before we go to grass, we have a pretty good idea what our weights will be. And then we might even tag some of those grass cattle and tag them in different colors. So when we go to sort, we already know what the scale's showing us. And so we will sort accordingly to the tag because if they have your stuff, we'll all get a different tag so that our sort's real easy. So in, in our rotational grazing, we work around 
where we can get to a facility to sort and then we leave pasture so then we can ship you know close to where we to where we sort and we try to time that uh, accordingly so and we can we can also sort in pasture with uh, we've got a mobile set of corrals and working facilities but we try to rotate to where we're around corrals where we can get semis in and so on and so forth so yes and then and again the yearling cattle are important because of the drought number one but number two we've even experimented grazing the yearlings ahead of the cows because in our cool season we always have quantity it's just quality when it gets you know, when it starts maturing. So if we graze those yearlings out of our cows, sometimes our cool season mature a little later because it's always in a regrowth mode. So that's kind of how we use our yearlings. In terms of your own calves, you wean those and then do you background them on crop residue or in a dry lot scenario? Are they out on range? What does that look like in terms of prepping those calves for the next grazing season? Yeah, in our scenario, we have large backgrounding lots that works better because our winters are so hard. Sometimes if we didn't have them close in, uh, we couldn't get to them because of how our snow drifts. But we will uh, wean them on a high roughage ration that is hay that we produce, whether it be prairie hay or some of these cover crops, you know, sedan, oats, and then wet distillers will be in, it would be important for us. And then we do use some liquid protein we like the liquid protein because we can balance our ration very easily with it. So yes, we try to use our own stuff as far as things that we raise and then add the wet distillers and the liquid protein. But again, we're only gaining maybe a, a one five to one six. And then anything that would naturally be heavy might get sorted off and go to a feed yard right, right before grass. But we try to put as many head on grass as we can. So talk a little more about your cover crops and how you utilize windrow grazing with that. What does that look like in your system? Well, so we started experimenting with cover crops. and I'm probably going to get the date wrong, but let's say 2015, 16. In Boyd County, where we're at, we've got smaller farm acreages. We don't have these large quarters up in Boyd County. So you might have 60 acres and we'd be rotating out of an old alfalfa or something and so we would maybe try a fall cover crop and try grazing it. And then we learned that, you know, that was working for us. We even experimented with some grazing cover crops under irrigation. And then as we, as we developed it, something that kind of sticks to my mind, and we even did a, a three-year grazing study with the university on cover crops. But one thing that I would share with your listeners that I think is very important is cover crop planted like July 31st versus cover crop planted August 15th and cover crop planted September 1st. Here's the difference. July 30th in our northern climate, I can get cover crop to grow to my chest if we get rain. August 15th, a 15th day difference, it might be to my calves. And then September 1st, it might only get ankle high or, you know, in my shins. So that told us a lot that these heat units, you just cannot make up for heat units. So if we're trying to produce tonnage for fall grazing, we try to get that planted by the end of July and pray for rain. 
that's the first big key that we learned in our northern climate. Well, I would echo that. I think out here we see that as well. It's amazing, as you said, how much difference two weeks makes. You know, if we're looking at oats planted here the 1st of August versus the 15th or uh, by September 1st, we just don't get much growth. But yeah, it's really amazing. Uh, day length and heat units sure do make a difference. Yeah, I and that that's maybe one of the big takeaways of today's conversation is just heat units. You cannot make up for that. And we don't, quite frankly, if we're going to graze a cover crop in the fall, in our mind, it's got to be planted in our climate, you know, by the end of July. And we even tried to sneak it up you know, a little, a, a little sooner, you know, by between July 15th and the 30th. So talk about the different mixes you're using in your cover crops, and then how are you harvesting those direct grazing, windrow grazing, strip grazing? How does that look? Yeah, what I'd like to do is maybe use an example that worked really well for us. And then I can tell you a couple, you know, some other things that we've done. But and, and I will also point out, 20 and 21 have been horrible cover crop years for us in grazing. For example, in 2021, because it's, you know, the latest and I can remember it the best, but or we tried planting cover crop uh, two different times. And I, I tell people I put 100 pounds of seed in the ground and it never come up. We were just so dry. There was no moisture to bring it up. So the last two years have been very difficult for the cover crop scenario, almost non-existent unless unless it was under irrigation and then i think you know with cattle prices the way they are today those have been very successful because of the value of your feed that you're producing and and on our ranch we try to value everything so when we background everything's weighed because the cattle owners in our operation might be different than the the land owners and so we are put a dollar figure to everything and so we weigh and price everything just like we do our cover crops. So with that, one great example we had was in 2018, and I've had quite a bit of data on it, but we had pretty good fall rain. But in 2018, we drilled on August 1st, spring peas, a BMR sorghum, a spring oats, cereal rice, daikon radish, purple top turnip, a kind of a hybrid brisca, uh, black oil seed sunflower, and it totaled 48 pounds. And, and later, if you want to know, I can break down the poundage for you. But we like a cocktail mix because diversity is the key to everything we believe. And so the diversity in our seed mixes, they all do something different. So we like BMR, BMR sorghum because that usually is our tonnage. And if you add a spring pea, then you kind of get some feed value. Oats also is great tonnage. Rye, you get some soil health, a little bit of tonnage out of there, and potentially you can get some regrowth in the spring. We like the turnips and radishes because of the soil health and because it'll go down there, especially if you use a nitro radish and it'll break up that soil for compaction. So, you know, we're when we do these cocktail mixes, we're trying to maybe do some soil health components, some feed quality components, and just some feed volume components. And then, believe it or not, the sunflower, when we graze our cover crop standing, 
we noticed the sunflowers, the first thing they go after. So the, the sunflower, I think we, we just enjoy that. And we, because we can see that that's top on their priority list. So that's kind of a mix that we use. That mix was 48 pounds. We drilled it August 1st at three fourths to an inch deep. And at that date, it cost us $28.53 per acre for that seed. In today's market, that would be higher. You know, you might be looking in the $40 an acre range, but that's kind of where we were at on that seed mix in, in 18. And I'll pause, Aaron, because you might have a question on our seed, seed mix and why we did what we did. Yeah, I think maybe even more so is how does that fit in your cropping system or what does that look like? How do you fit a cover crop in? Is that just part of a routine uh, rotation? What does that look like as you talk about your cropping system and then fitting that to your cattle? Okay, so in this August, what we were doing is we had in uh, August of 2018, we had an, a very old stand of alfalfa. And so what we did is in this particular case that worked pretty good is we went out and we took 2.54 tons. So we did kind of a a mixed first and second cutting. So we tried to get as much tonnage on this dry land alfalfa as we could. We cut it, we come in and we sprayed it uh, with Roundup and 2,4-D after it kind of come back grazing with the theory that we would probably kill the weeds uh, and then probably half the alfalfa. And we wanted part of that alfalfa in our in our cover crop mix. And that and that's kind of exactly what happened. And we kind of killed the weeds, stunted the alfalfa, and then we come in and drilled August 1st this mix with the idea that we would have a little bit of, of old alfalfa in it. But to your point, you've got to be careful when you plant with what you've sprayed, if, if you've used chemical, because that chemical the residual could affect your cover crops. So make sure you're planning ahead with whatever chemicals you use in order to make sure you can plant your cover crop. So that that is a valid point. So for example, this year, I'm coming off of corn. Because of the atrazine we used in the corn, I will basically come back with a uh, like a winter forage wheat and we will either graze or harvest that. And then I will come back with some sort of short-term millet and we will take that as forage. And then I will come back with my alfalfa because I'm trying to rotate back into alfalfa. And then our other fields that we have that are old alfalfa, we will probably do a similar, similar deal that I did in 18 with the mix that I just used. So. I guess we're rotating out of alfalfa and corn acres and trying to come back into some sort of uh, cover crop that we can maybe take a cutting of hay and then winter windrow graze and then come back into an alfalfa or something. So we might have six or seven fields that we're continually rotating in and out of. So what does it look like in terms of then grazing those or windrow grazing those? How do you decide which you're going to do? How do you handle the water situation here? I'm thinking about livestock water. What does that look like? Yes. So with this dry land farm that we had, we actually drilled a well in 16, 2016. So we could take the opportunity to graze these cover crops. So 
yes. Um, we, we ended up investing. I invested, uh, it, it was a shallow well, probably $8,000 at the time that I figured that we would recoup in grazing. And then our other cover crops, we've had to bring in pipeline or we've had to fence out maybe a little bit of pasture areas that add pipeline to it in order to incorporate where we have planted these. But, you know, now that I think about it, that's, you know, that's a very good question. Most of our areas that we've incorporated into cover crops, we have pulled pipeline into. And that obviously is very important. And, and to go back to this 2018, where I gave you our mix of the peas, sorghum, oats, rye, radish, turnip, and sunflowers, and I said, you know, in that, it was about $28 an acre for that. The spray and roundup was about $20 back then. You know, now chemicals have gone up and probably be around 40 today. And then to drill back then was $15 an acre. Today, it'd be 25 So, and then we added about $25 of, of uh, fertilizer. So at that point, we had $88 an acre in uh, today you'd probably be closer to 120. But what we did is we planted in that acreage was 63 acres. We planted it all into this. And when we windrowed it, we put it down in as big a windrows as we could make. And because we wanted to build like a mini haystack with our windrow to repel moisture and Remember, we've not done a lot of this, and we were pretty nervous that this would all turn to mush when it snowed. So when we windrowed this particular one, we waited for a freeze because we wanted this to freeze, and then we windrowed it about five days after because we wanted it kind of to freeze dry. And so it was in November, and I remember it because it was right before deer season, so it was like we might have cut it November 5th because we had our first big major freeze and then it was going to be cold for like six or seven days after. So freeze it out, put it in these big windrows and then kind of freeze dried it. And then that particular year, we had a pretty significant snow about all oh, three or four days after we windrowed it. So we were we were watching the weather and we were trying to time it. And when that snow come, I was pretty nervous. And actually, the snow stayed on those windrows most of the winter until we grazed it. So we were pretty nervous about that. But that's what we did. We did there. Just some of the things you shared there in terms of your mix, you thought about timing. Uh, obviously, two things we do to preserve forage, we dry them out. And, and another thing we do is if we want to preserve something, we freeze it. So your comment about freeze drying, I think is really applicable. I guess, talk just a little about the soil type you're dealing with there. Is it a heavy soil, sandy soil? What's the soil type in terms of what you have out there? Yeah, you're spot on there. So we had visited with some people that had done a lot of uh, grazing, standing, and uh, the Peterson family, uh, Nancy Peterson and Rex. But what concerned us is they were in a lot sandier soil than we are. So we're north of the Niobrara River, right on the Niobrara River. And so our soil is heavy clay uh, soil, almost a gumbo. And so that's what I was really concerned about is we were going to be drawing moisture up from that clay soil. Our moisture wasn't 
probably going to be filtering down into the sand. So that's what we were concerned about, that we might rot our cover crop from the soil up. And so that's why we wanted to wait as late as we could. We cut it actually after a killing frost, like two days. And we wanted to make sure that we stacked it high in a pile so that when it did snow, that it was like a haystack, if you can envision that in a windrow. So our windrows were as big and peaked as we could get because we wanted the, any snow to kind of run off. And then we wanted the ground to be, be thinking about being frozen. So we draw the least amount of moisture from the ground as possible. And, and then I think it's important to talk about the prussic acid amendment. You know, you can get that on cover crops. So we wanted to cut it. And if I understand right, you can kind of, by cutting it and let it set, you can get rid of the prussic acid the nitrates, and maybe you can contact, uh, comment on that better than I can, Aaron, but the nitrates is something I think you need to be careful with, especially in a drought scenario. If you're cutting these, they can hold those nitrates. I think by cutting it and letting it sit a couple months, you might help, but that is not a cure-all for nitrates. Is that correct, Aaron? Yeah, that's correct. So prussic acid is really just an issue if you're direct grazing or you have a freeze and those cell walls burst and you get that content and then it breaks down within four or five days after a freeze. And, you know, it's not an issue. Your comment about nitrates is correct. You know, if we think about putting up annual forages for hay, if we have a nitrate issue, that really does not break down very much in a windrow or in hay. Uh, sometimes if the crop is left standing, just some natural deterioration, it will break down some. But yeah, what you put in the windrow, you can think about just like you'd put in a bale. It's basically the same. Uh, the nitrate's really not going to break down in that over time. So for folks who are thinking about doing this, if you have a drought-stressed crop, I always encourage folks to uh, maybe get a sample first, see what they have in terms of a nitrate. And then, you know, then you can use that to maybe make some decisions. Uh, raising your cutter bar, things like that can help reduce the amount of actual nitrate that you have in the forage that you would winter graze because most of the nitrates is going to be concentrated in the bottom third of the stem of that plant. But yeah, you're, you're on target there with what you talked about. And we try to limit our nitrates just for that reason. And we would cut higher. Okay. So this is important. I, I about forgot this, but we will purposely cut higher on these windrow grazed crops because that stubble will actually hold up your windrow a little bit and allow a little air and a little breathing underneath that windrow. So, you know, if you can think of it setting on top of a kind of a higher cut stubble, uh, that is another reason we, we've done that. So that, that's an excellent point. I'm glad you brought that up. We will cut it higher and let those windrows rest on those higher cut stubble in order to get a little air and maybe a little distance between the, the direct soil and our windrow. And then you also made me think, so why do we windrow graze versus standing graze? Because standing graze, you know, you cut out the cost of windrowing it. I think the reason we do it is if we've got a really good crop, we don't want to waste any of it. And we find with windrow grazing, those cattle will not waste those windrows. And so I need to back up a minute. So on 63 acres in this, this example I'm showing you, and most of our fields, because of 
how the glaciers laid up in Boyd County. It seems like all of our little fields are 60 acres. It's just the way it works. So on these fields, we will fence electric, one wire electric fence out the windrows. So what we will do is provide enough windrows. So on like, if it's a, a long 80, we will fence across the short and we will only graze about what, or only fence out what we think they can graze in two to three days. And so we will put that fence right in the windrow. And the reason you do that, and, and I guess maybe I even need to back up some more. So we knock these windrows down right in a freeze. So I told you November around deer season, but we did not graze that until into December. So it sat all that time. And so then the ground did get frozen. But if you put your electric fence, your one wire electric fence in the windrow, they will push down because it will not freeze under those windrows or usually it won't. And so we will only fence off enough for two or three days. And so when we put our first electric fence up, we'll put two up. And then when we pull the first one, we'll just hop skip the second one. And then we'll just keep hop skipping over and it only takes us maybe, you know, one guy can put up an electric wire across there if, you've got, if you're set up right to roll out, you know, with your post and a four-wheeler or a side-by-side -side in probably 45 minutes, you know, maybe an hour. Two guys can do it in probably 20 minutes. And then what we would do is we fence away from our water. So our water source might be on one side of the field. And so we'll just fence away from it so they can always go back to water, but they will clean up those windrows to where you can't see anything. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. You mentioned just uh, direct grazing versus winter grazing, the advantage you feel like you get in terms of harvest efficiency and utilization, comparing those two, uh, just give some perspective on that. And then I think also just give some perspective on, you know, you obviously put those in a windrow, you could have bailed them, hauled them off and then fed the cattle back. What are some of the savings and advantages you see of the windrow grazing versus bailing that crop and then delivering that crop back to the cattle? Yeah, if I was to graze standing, which we have done, putting up a fence is a little more difficult. You almost have to run over it with your four-wheeler so you can place your fence, right? Because it's it, if you've got chest high or head high cover crops, you know, you're walking through that to try to put your electric fence in. And then we found that they just trample so much. Now, that trampling can be a soil health component if that's what you want, putting organic material back into the soil. So if you're short of or organic material, that might be an option because the neat thing about this grazing of cover crops, windrow or standing, is you, you not only are you feeding your livestock, but you're, you're also creating a soil health component. So that might be as equally as important when you have $7 crop, then that, that residual becomes very important to get back down. But, but now if you look on the flip side, you got $250 hay, then I'm managing for both, but maybe a little more for the, the livestock side, but we, we could graze both, but the standing, I fear that we just waste a lot to trampling. So that's why the windrow grazing is, is better. And then Obviously, the windrow grazing is great because it cost me $15 to make a bale, and then I've got to haul it off there, and then 
I don't know, it probably cost me, we charged 40 cents a head a day for yardage, which is fuel and feeding. So, you know, it's going to cost you 40 cents a head a day to feed that bale. And by windrow grazing, you don't have any of that. Plus, the other component is you're putting your manure in a pretty condensed area. So you're you're helping your fertilizer needs for the next season. And we try to stock pretty heavy. So we, we want to be done windrow grazing maybe in 45 days or, or 60 days on this 60 acres. So we'll put maybe 100 first calf heifers or maybe even 200 and narrow it to 30 days and concentrate the manure and the hoof action and all of that. And then we it's no different than rotating pastures. Then you rotate to the next group. And we probably rotate from our furthest area to our closest as winter comes. So in case we get a big, big snow, we can deal with it. So you're grazing this primarily with first calf heifers going to be starting, I guess, end of February, 1st of March. Is that correct? So what we will do is, so our older cows go to stocks, but we have grazed older cows. It just depends on how much forage we have. So in those dry years, what we like to do is fall graze whatever residual pasture we have. And remember, we're, we're cool season. So when I do my rotation, I try to leave a little residual and then we will fall graze. We typically like to leave our younger stock at home and ship our older cows because we think we can care for the younger ones a little better at home, you know, and versus turn them out just on stocks and they're kind of on their own other than good stocks are good. But come come wintertime, you know, January, February, those stocks, because of the amount of energy you need on stocks with the cold weather, you just got to be careful and we can, can supplement if we need to, though we don't supplement much on our cover crop. Plus, we think what's in our windrow is much better than what's in that. If you've got good peas and sorghum sudan and some radish and turnips in there, you've got kind of a complete mix in that windrow. We think our younger stock, we can take a little better care with them in the windrow. And I will say on corn stocks, we rotate our corn stocks too, because we want fresh feed in front of them. So we try to rotate corn stocks every 15 to, you know, 15 plus days, somewhere in there also. So there's a common theme of rotation here. But to better answer your question, we will fall graze our pastures until the snow comes and our pastures are a little further from home. And when we get this feeling, we need to get them closer to home because we don't want to get a blizzard. Then that's when we start heading our cattle towards our, our windrowed stockpiled cover crop is how I put it. And so we allow the winter to dictate that. The winter dictates that we need to have cows home in December because we got a blizzard coming. That's when they're, we start sending them home. If, if the winter dictates that we can go to January, then that's what we do. And then we have this stockpiled forage for when they hit home. Uh, and then we've got hay. So if we get in a real bad scenario, then we, we can feed hay. But we try not to do that if we can. Talk a little about, because I think some people are thinking, and you mentioned it, we haven't gone kind of deeper into it, but what do you see happen to these windrows when you get snow? First from uh, what happens with quality, and then second, how do the cattle handle snow, a foot of snow or a blizzard uh, when you're grazing these windrows? Great. That's where I was hoping you were going. And I wanted to back up one, one more step. So we fall graze, and if we've got a lot of available cropland for cover crops, we will then tier our cover crops. So we might put in more oats. I love oats because they grow fast. 
radishes and turnips, but you got to graze those before you get a lot of snow because when the snow comes, they start deteriorating. So we've had great su success grazing oats and radishes and turnips, and you can get tons of forage on radishes and turnips. And we really like that, but it's like everything, Aaron, as you know, it's what mother nature gives you. So if you're getting a lot of fall rain and you have a place that you can plant some oats and radishes and turnips and the ability to graze it more in November versus December, January, when the snow hits and they've deteriorated, then we would fall graze our grass, try to come to a oats, radish, turnips, and then come to our, what we have stockpiled in a windrow. And so that's where we're at in your question is what does that windrow look to in 2019 again we windrows that after a killing freeze two or three days and when we knew it would freeze dry for five or six days after and that's what exactly happened on this in 18 and then we had a fairly significant snow on it i'm thinking eight inches and then it got cold and it continued to snow we didn't have it like any blizzards but my guess is when the cattle come to graze this, the end of November, beginning of December, it had snow on top of the windrows. We had only fenced out two or three days worth of grazing. And what they did, Aaron, is they just stuck their mo nose in it and it was like they were at the bunk. They just started at the first windrow, they cleaned it up and they moved to the next windrow. And a matter of fact, we were a little concerned that they might, might overindulge. And we honestly moved our fence and kind of limited it because they were really grazing it hard. And then we, we made them graze those windrows so there was nothing there before we allowed the fence in. So we kind of, they kind of gorged themselves at first. And then after they get into it, they kind of figure it out. We also, on the first grazing, we had a little bit of dry matter. You could put dry matter hay, but in this case, we had some grass that was naturally in this field, like the edges, and we had some waterways and stuff that we purposely left so that they could graze that too. But we had no problems. They grazed it like crazy, and we made them earn their keep, and then we moved the fence. The other thing we found and that's important, I think, when we put this over this old alfalfa field, what we found out is these big windrows were insulating that alfalfa, and under the windrows, the alfalfa was growing So because it was insulated under there. So we also had uh, the added benefit of additional alfalfa that was growing under those windrows. And so that was really cool to find. We did not see any deterioration of our wind grows due to the snow. And so, you know, we felt comfortable in that year. It was a pretty wet year and our wind rows held up pretty good. Well, very good, actually. And I think we wind rode the, the stockpiled clear up till maybe January 15th, beginning of February. And then we had some stockpiled hay meadow that we put them on after that but uh we got along fine and there there was no molding or decaying issue in those and we have not witnessed any molding or decaying but understanding this was 18 and the drought started like 19 20 21 so we we've not had 
several years of data to show that, but that 18 was a pretty wet year and we, we did not have any deterioration of our windrows. So what does your system look like for this year? I mean, I know you've had some drought. I think parts of your country were dry early and maybe did catch some rains then uh, in June and July here. What are you guys getting set up for this fall? So we stocked in 2021 because you got to go back and you got to plan probably a year in advance. So in 2021, we probably only stocked at 70%. And we and what we took off was the yearling cattle like we told you about. So we probably had no yearling cattle on our pastures by probably June 15th. They were probably all gone. And so then in 2021, we took everything, even our young stuff to corn stalks, because I did not have any cover crops because I we planted 100 pounds of seed and nothing come up. But we were able to make it through the full grazing season without dry lotting or haying or supplementing anything. But it's because we put our drought plan, put it into motion. We made the decision early by May 1st to go 70% stocking. And so then we got into corn stalks. We got everything home. We had plenty of feed, but we had 70 inches snow, the worst winter we've ever had, maybe in the history that we know of, up there. And so we utilized a lot more feed than we did, but we bought those cows home in stocks, I think February 15th-ish. And we had our own corn stalks that we grazed, but they were full of snow. So then we we fed quite a bit of hay. So what I'm trying to tell you is, you know, up in our country, the picture I'm trying to paint is that, you know, we used our feed hay resources this winter because of the hard winter. But we put cattle on pasture on cool season. April 25th is when we started and at that point, we were moving them every two to three days because we didn't think we had the grass. And then about May 15th, we were blessed with about a week of three inches of rain. And we stocked this year at about 80 percent. But actually, we were blessed. And with that 70 inches snow and then the rain, all of a sudden, our cool season just exploded. And so... There was there's were times this summer that I thought we were understocked, but now that we're dealing with this intense heat, we're probably going to be about right at this 80%. We foresee that these corn stalks will will open earlier because of the the extreme heat we've had. They're maturing faster. We will take our old cows to stocks. I think I've got enough residual grass but you know we got another heat stress here but i'm anticipating we're going to get some fall rains that will be able to fall graze and then we planted quite a bit of sudan bmr sudan in old alfalfa that we've already mowed once and we will windrow graze that if if we can keep it going and then we planted some other mixes similar you know with the rye and the BMR sorghum and the radish and turnips that will probably graze standing because we'll probably need it earlier just because of our situation. But uh, we are still trying to incorporate the cover crops. This BMR Sudan does well. That will all be put in windrow grazing. 
and then there we've got 120 acres of that so there could be a lot of grazing there we were doing really good Aaron but this last heat spell and this one coming has got me concerned if I, if it can go dormant on us a little bit and wait till a rain that's why I like the sorghum sedan because it seems to be able to wait for rain a little bit then I think we will have some ability to windrow graze again if it stays hot and dry you know i think i think all of us grazers are going to be grazing corn stalks and probably be supplementing a little more than we want tim i really appreciate all you shared today anything else you'd like to highlight on what you've done there as we point towards wrapping up i just want to go back to my scenario and i wanted to come full circle so on that scenario in on that 63 acres I just wanted to give you an idea in 2018, we grazed 100 head for 77 days on 63 acres. So we had an actual 7,716 actual head days on that 63 acres. And if I, on a dry matter basis, if I was saying they were taking 35 pounds of intake, which is a lot, but remember, they're free grazing. I mean, we the only way we controlled it was by limiting it by when we moved our electric fence. I figured they got 2.13 tons per acre of dry forage that we graze. So in today's market, you figure 258, that's $500 an acre that we gained on that ground. That year, you know, hay was only worth, you know, maybe like $80 or something. So my net gain per acre that year was about $50 an acre plus 2.4 tons of mixed hay that I produced prior to planting this in August. Because if you remember, I told you we, we had an old stand of alfalfa. I let it go and, and grow and grow and grow. And then we cut it. And then I come back in, you know, in August with this, with this cover crop. If memory serves me right, I think I'm missing. I think what I did is, uh, yes, I did. I come in that old alfalfa and I interceded a mixed BMR and other cover crops in there and just let it grow and let it do whatever it did and weeds and all. And that's how I get the, got to the 2.54 ton is because it was old alfalfa interceded with cover crop. And uh, we just let it grow and then we harvested it late and then we sprayed it like, like we harvested in July, sprayed it and then uh, come back with our this mix that I told you on, on August 1st. So but I'm just telling you, if you're willing to experiment and do different things and intercede and do different things, you can get this tonnage and put a dollar figure to it. That's what I was trying to do for you. So let's put a dollar figure for it. Well, Tim, I really appreciate your time today. I appreciate you sharing with us your system. I guess if I think about our conversation, I really see you're trying to put together a lot of pieces to a puzzle, uh, trying to fit those all together for the resources you have, where you're located. I really appreciate you sharing that with us because I think that that really is a key component if you're going to use this is thinking about how it fits in your entire system. Yes, you got to be flexible and and that can be hard to do because you got to give what mother nature gives you and you know we had quite a bit of expense last year in planting, you know, in drilling and seed, but I also knew that if I didn't drill it, it would never grow. And so 
I, I just kept thinking with the the what the cost of this feed was going to be. I had to get it in the ground, and if it did take, it was going to be well worth the cost of putting in because feed was so hard to find and so expensive last year, and it will be this year. So we just we just kept trying and we kept hoping for rain, and we kept adjusting. You know, in some of these old alfalfas, we were going to plant something different like a millet and then we decided we weren't going to touch it because we were going to get the first cutting because we felt we could do that but then we'll be willing to be flexible on what we intercede after that based on what mother nature gave us so i just be flexible there is a place for this and that the windrow grazing we like and we've done it in heavy soil and, and not had a problem well tim thanks for your time today really appreciate you sharing with us just what you're doing there with your operation, what you've learned and how you try to incorporate windrow grazing in your system. Yeah. And I appreciate you asking me and I would be, Aaron, if you get any feedback, I would be, I would enjoy the feedback that you get because we're all learning. And if somebody would provide feedback to you and say, Hey, maybe they should try this. I want to know, you know, because that's how we learned is we called the Petersons and about Wayne Rasmussen up there, we called three or four different groups of people and, and just, and they were willing to share. I think we need to share. And they just said, this worked for us, try this. And that's what we did. And so, you know, we just keep experimenting and trying and learning. We, we also had things that didn't work and, you know, you chalked it up and you moved on. Well, for more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, you can find more information on windrow grazing as well as annual cover crops at the beef.unl.edu website. And if you would like Tim's contact information, you can shoot me an email and I'd be happy to share that with you.